Microsoft and Amazon are the tech giants of the Pacific Northwest. These two companies shape technology in Seattle, and Todd Bishop has been writing about them for over a decade. Todd is the co-founder of GeekWire, an online media company focused on technology in the Pacific Northwest. In this episode of Software Engineering Daily, Todd and I sit down to discuss the past and present of Microsoft and Amazon, and what it means for an engineering company to be good or evil, and also what it's like to do software journalism, which both of us have plenty of experience doing. Todd Bishop is the co-founder of GeekWire, an online media company focused on technology in the Pacific Northwest. Todd, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, it's great to be here, Jeff. You've been covering Seattle technology companies since the early 2000s, and one of the biggest stories over that time period is the rise of Amazon in the shadow of Microsoft. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is there a distinctive point in time where there was a big engineering drain from Microsoft to Amazon? You know, I don't know if it was one moment in time, but it certainly started to happen. Um, gosh, I don't know. I would say maybe 2006, 2007, sort of in the buildup to the Great Recession. I think you saw Amazon at that point had really recovered from the dot-com bust when a lot of people on Wall Street, for example, were saying, hey, this company may not even survive. They, they got through that in the in the 2000 time frame, 1999, 2000. And, and after that, they, they got back on their feet. And then it started to become apparent that Amazon was more than just this website where you bought books. And that was the point, I think, where they started to hire more aggressively in engineering and you know AWS emerged and all those things started to coalesce to the point that, that Microsoft and other companies started to lose key engineers to Amazon. Mm. And it goes back and forth, though. It's funny. You sort of see a, a trade-off. Some people will go to Amazon and go back to Microsoft. And and it, it's sort of – there's sort of a, uh, a pipeline back and forth between the two companies. Yeah. And what is the narrative that you hear when you talk to people that are involved in engineering at these two different companies? How do you see the – the cultures of those two companies contrasted? And how has that contrast evolved over time? It, I think you have to look back to Microsoft's heritage in packaged software and the whole notion that Microsoft comes from a place where they shipped one version of Windows every three years. And now Microsoft has gotten away from that. You know, they've It's been a difficult path for them, but they've been able to get to the point where they now ship uh, regularly and they have incubation projects where apps are built that you know might have nothing to do with Windows. They might be for Android. So Microsoft's a very different place, but I think that type of approach is in Amazon's DNA, mm -hmm. whereas Microsoft has had to manufacture it a bit and become a company that can ship on internet time. Amazon has always done that, and things like AWS grew out of Amazon's need to really uh, fuel its e-commerce platform and make sure that it could scale. And then they said, wait a second, this technology we just built for ourselves, man, other people could could use this. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think those those are to me are the, the big differences in the culture in, in terms of the, the engineering. Uh, it's And we can get into this if you want. It's fascinating to cover them as a reporter because I, I started covering Microsoft specifically at the Seattle PI newspaper back in – 2002, 2003, roughly that time frame. 
And people would say, man, you're never going to crack Microsoft. You're never going to get inside that company and figure out what's actually going on. <laughs> and I would say that about Amazon now. Amazon has taken that mantle. Uh, they are just, um, they're a difficult company to get information out of. Mm -hmm. And you, it, it, to me, that's exciting as a reporter yeah. because that means I have to use all of my resources and develop my own sources and, and figure out what's going on there on my own. And uh, that, that's, that's the ultimate challenge. Reporters live for that. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Fascinating. So what are, I mean, you know, I'm curious as a human being, but I'm also curious as a journalist, what are some of those tactics the uh, back channeling type of yeah. tactics to get information that is clandestine. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give you a great example. Um, you know, the New York Times story came out last year and they did a great job of getting lots of good sources. You could question this is the culture yeah. story, yeah. Uh, the story of Amazon being a sweatshop, intellectual sweatshop. Yeah. Right. Uh, the whole idea of people crying at their desks and, uh, you know, you could question the validity of their anecdotes and whether those anecdotes actually are things that are representative of the the broader whole. I think Amazon is very it's a very difficult company to characterize in generalities because I think for employees there in particular, your experience will vary widely depending on where you are in the organization, who you're working for, who your manager is. Mm -hmm. At any rate, that New York Times story came out and we asked ourselves, so wait a second, what? We, there's a lot of anecdotes in this story, in the New York Times story. What do Amazon employees really complain about? <laughs> so uh, a couple of the reporters here, uh, my colleague John Cook and a reporter who was here at the time named Jacob Demet, decided to make a public records request to the Department of Labor and Industries. Oh. And they asked in this public records request for any complaint that had been filed against Amazon with L&I over anything by an employee. And we got the documents back and um, in looking through them, it became apparent that the biggest complaint, the number one complaint of Amazon employees in the sample that we got was that there were not enough men's bathrooms for all the dudes who work there. So essentially, people there have to go from floor to floor in some of the Amazon buildings looking for open stalls, open bathrooms. I had to do that when I worked at Amazon. Yeah. I remember having to do that. So it's actually in some cases, uh, I don't know if it caused health problems for people that they had to hold it for so long. But is it – and see, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. First off, it's I think – emblematic of a few different things. So the, the gender diversity problem that the world of engineering has. Um, and, and it's also an example of us trying to rely and, and really attempting to rely on our traditional journalism roots to go for the documents that can tell the story, not just the people or the press releases. You know, you have to, at our best, and we, we don't always achieve this, but at our best, we're going beyond just what's coming out of the companies and actually finding things that others are saying about the companies or that the employees are saying. And so that really, to answer your question, circling all the way back, is the thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to get a comprehensive view of whatever subject we're covering by not just listening to the person or the company we're covering, but getting all sorts of other things around them that really indicate what's going on. Mm. That Amazon story, the, the one of the interesting things that I heard come out, uh, well, I heard in the 
the froth of the press discussion about that piece, uh, and uh, which continues to this day, um, was this idea that there seems to be a a growing narrative between traditional media outlets against giant tech companies. Is it is that is that inaccurate, or do you think that that's true? I think it can happen. I think it depends on the circumstance. It's it's difficult to make a a, a trend out of it um, or to see a trend there. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I, that's a really good question. I wonder if um, – here's, here's where I see things like the New York Times or um, the Washington Post, which Jeff Bezos owns. I, I really do think that they have um, – uh, an opportunity to be the example of what journalism can still do. And in many, many times they, they do that. They hold the mantle and they um, are great examples of what a lot of the online sites should be doing. And, and so in that way, I think that the, the sheer effort that the New York Times put into that piece on Amazon's bruising workplace has to be commended. And um, whether or not you agree with the conclusions they drew, and I know that opinions on that are actually all over the map. Mm-hmm. It, it was actually a very divisive story, um, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. It raised the issue and allowed people to, to debate it. Um, w- whether there's a, a phenomenon going on where it's you know those big media companies versus the tech companies, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Well, one point that... Uh kind of stuck in my craw was the the lack of a recognition that perhaps in order to build things as world-changing as AWS, uh, you have to put your nose to the grindstone. You have to do this sort of bruising, sweaty, difficult, painful work. Uh, if I recall, there was almost no mention of that, no no attribution to the fact that, oh, AWS arguably led to Web 2.0, um, certainly was a huge precipitating factor. Um, but, uh, you know, anyway, we could we could regurgitate, um, you know, <laughs> tech, tech media discussions for the entire uh, podcast, but this is Software Engineering Daily. I want to talk about some <laughs> software engineering okay. uh, related topics. And the first one, I, you know... Um, I want to talk about Microsoft because you've been covering Microsoft for a long time. You've lived in Seattle for a long time. And the the Microsoft antitrust case is ultimately a, a case around engineering. And yeah, yeah. it's something that I I was not um, you know around for. I, I wasn't involved in software engineering at all at that time. And so to what degree do you understand what happened with the Microsoft antitrust case? And what is your personal verdict on whether Microsoft actually did anything nefarious. I covered the tail end of it. So the uh, the case, I'm trying to remember the exact timing, but uh, when I came in, it was the aftermath. It was a lot of the lawsuits with the individual states and then a lot of Microsoft's compliance with the settlement. Um, a couple observations there. I, I do think that Microsoft felt... Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to um, attribute um, intent, but 
I think there certainly are people inside Microsoft, leaders who were there at the time, who felt they were doing the right thing by um, making sure, for example, that Windows um, was you know a, a strong application platform and that um, people were writing applications for Windows. They felt like they were doing the, the best thing. And uh, you know, it's boy, you're dusting off my memory banks on this one. It's funny how quickly this one has faded. But the the gist of the problem there was that you know, Microsoft was creating uh, essentially trapping developers into writing for Windows. It was sort of a um, uh, the, the, what was the phrase that they used? Um, embrace, extend, and, and extinguish. Yeah, or yeah. Ex ex embrace, extend, and extinguish. And the, the whole idea that um, you had to build for Windows because the the apps okay, were the, the users were there. What does that mean? Embrace, extend, extinguish. So that had to do with a lot of the the tech standards. Boy, I'm probably going to get killed by some of your <laughs> listeners who remember all this stuff better than I do. It, it, seriously, it's funny. I, I actually do think that. It became the, – the settlement became irrelevant so quickly and, and it speaks to the fact that technology just moved on, just moved on past Microsoft in many ways on, on a lot of those fronts um, with the rise of smartphones. I mean to me, if you look back historically, um, the – you know, Windows was dominant. It was 90 percent of the market and, and the question really fundamentally was whether Microsoft was uh, favoring its own applications over competing applications. Um, on Windows, and then also whether that then created this um, virtuous cycle, that's what it was, mm -hmm. where you had app developers writing for Windows because the, it had the, the user base, and then the users were going to Windows because it had all the apps, and then it just, it snowballed, it snowballed. And the thing that disrupted that, the thing that disrupted it was the rise of mobile computing, which Microsoft was not ready for. And so when you had the smartphones just come out of um, the just sort of come out of the shadows and, and disrupt all that, suddenly, you know, Android and, and iOS became in many ways the dominant client computing platforms for the people who would have otherwise maybe used Windows for those kinds of apps. It, Sorry, I know that's so, very muddled. but No, no, not muddled at all. I mean, is there a macro conclusion to draw from that? Because because. Uh, the Supreme Court did uh, – no, sorry, Department of Justice yes. did find that Microsoft was a monopoly engaging in abusive business practices. Yes. Uh, I've got a quote from Wikipedia. <laughs> Underlying these disputes were questions over whether Microsoft altered or manipulated its APIs yes. to favor Internet Explorer over third-party web browsers. That's so, right. So it seems like they came to the conclusion that these APIs did favor Internet Explorer over third-party web browsers in – what uh, amount? What they anticipate would amount to a virtuous cycle, as you pointed out, it didn't end up really mattering that much because mobile disrupted everything. Is is the larger macro lesson here that uh, Department of Justice does not understand the Oof. the 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 nuances of technology in the business cycle and like and and. Perhaps should uh, well. I don't know. I mean, what is, is that? Is That's that a, a totally stretch? leading question. Is it a leading? Uh, yeah, I, I think that our our justice system in general, and even if you look at things like our regulatory system, like our patent system, I, I think it has a very hard time keeping up with the current pace of technology. I just covered a case, a story this past week about Redfin winning a series of patents for web interfaces for home searching. 
And if you read the patents, it's like, yeah, well, no, duh, this is what you should be doing. I mean, yeah, you, obviously you should be placing the homes on a satellite map and letting consumers browse around. And this is what they got the patent on oh just goodness. this past December. And they originally applied for it back in 2004. So, like, you know, uh, obviously the approval process at the patent office did not keep pace with the rest of the market. And so now the question is, can Redfin go back and extract licensing fees from Realtor.com and Zillow because they're showing homes on a map and letting consumers find uh, available M MLS data mm. on a map? And so, I don't know. To me, it, I do think that is a challenge uh, for the government, for competitors who might want to stop monopolists in the future from capitalizing unfairly on their monopoly. And that really was, to, to your point, that was the problem with what Microsoft did back then was it it had 90% share on Windows and then it leveraged that share to advantage its other products mm -hmm. like Windows Media Player and Internet Explorer. That, that yeah. was the problem now that it's coming back to me. And, um, uh, you know, I think what happens the next time? You know, what happens when Oculus becomes dominant in virtual reality and it's favoring its own applications over those from third-party developers? Now, maybe well, you could okay, argue so maybe that wouldn't happen. Here's the modern analog yes. that I think about is the uh, Facebook – what is it? Uh, free, free basics. The free basics thing. People are so worried that free basics is going to teach – people in India that Facebook is the internet. And actually many people do are starting to believe that. Um, but the question is, does it matter? Again, it's it's just like Department of Justice being afraid that people are going to be convinced that Internet Explorer is synonymous with web browser. Right. In five or ten years it's not going to matter. I mean, or True. maybe it will, but who knows? Like and and it's so hard to pass judgment. So okay. Putting that in question form uh, is the is the conversation around net neutrality uh, when it comes to to free basics? Um, I mean, I don't know how much you've you've looked into the free basics case, but um, do, do you think this is this is overly wrought, over overly negative, overly cynical? You know, I I think it's something that regulators should look at and ask whether it's in the interest of consumers, in the interest of users, for people, for companies to have those kinds of dominant positions and whether the companies are using those dominant positions to their own advantage over those of the end users. I think certainly there's a role for regulators in that way to, to make those kinds of inquiries. Now, whether they're effective in stopping whatever behavior they find, I think that's, that's a whole other issue entirely. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with them looking at it and trying to figure out if there's negative implications for end users. Do you think uh, – are people too – I guess um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Self-righteous about uh, net neutrality or too, do people have too narrow a view of what net neutrality is or what it should be? Or, I mean like yeah. I, I heard Reed Hastings recently like you know, he, he was fielding a question on net neutrality. Somebody asked him about net neutrality and he was like, I think net neutrality is – is really important and uh, it's really fundamental. And he didn't really like explain what his, what he, what he, what is net neutrality? Give <laughs> well, me a definition. Yeah, I mean it's the notion that all traffic on the internet is treated equally, right? And that okay, the internet practice. is sort of a public utility in, sure. in many ways, and that and that you don't allow one type of content to uh, move faster or more efficiently than another or cheaper uh, than another. Um, you know, I. 
I, I honestly, I, I read a lot about net neutrality and, and I understand as much as I think um, I can on, on the issue, but I, I, it's one where I really, um, to me, the verdict is still out in a lot of ways. You know, the, the, it's been really interesting to see what T-Mobile has done with Binge On, their, their video program where they essentially um, treat video differently in that it doesn't count against your data caps. And they've gotten in some hot water over that because of the net neutrality implications. But for me as an end user, I love it. I, you know, I'm a T-Mobile customer. There's not a lot that I love about T-Mobile, actually. Uh, but when they do these kinds of uncarrier moves, as they call them, where, you know, I if I'm watching um, Netflix on my iPhone, um, I can actually just go on LTE and, and watch it there, and it's not going to count against my data caps. Hey, that's nice as a T-Mobile customer. Now, you could argue that violates the principles of net neutrality because it's treating that type of content, that type of data differently than everything else. It's chart. It's not charging for it. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, to me, it's, it's a fascinating debate. I think there are, I, I think it's important to, to keep an open mind to how it actually impacts all of us and not just be adamantly opposed to anything that's not net neutral, not net neutral. That, that's where I am on yeah, it. Yeah. And well, what confuses me is like, there are people who will They'll be able to appreciate the nuances of like free markets. Like they'll be able to say, okay, yeah, there's situations where you should regulate the market and you should – and then there are also situations where you should just completely deregulate it. Free markets are great. Uh, but some people who are able to understand the nuances of the free market, for example, will still be dogmatic when it comes to net neutrality. Right. To me, it seems like this is, this is the same – two sides of the same coin. Net neutrality is just another version of the market. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That, that might be a little bit more philosophical okay. than I, than I get into okay. things, but, All right. but well, no, I, I, I appreciate it. No, no, no. <laughs> totally makes sense. More broadly, like, um, this idea of corporate evil, um, you know, people have been, uh, accusing the, the free basics plan as being evil, uh, as being this, uh, latent nefarious plan for Facebook to rule the world. We hear the same thing, uh, where we heard the same thing about about Microsoft a long time ago, um, and still, I mean, just this past week, Microsoft announced a plan to give away like one billion dollars worth of Azure and Office three sixty five to nonprofits. You know, it's obviously a, a, a philanthropic effort on its face, but then those nonprofits essentially become addicted to Microsoft services. Uh, you know, right? Uh, there, there's always I mean, these are businesses, yeah, and they have business interests that you know. And in a lot of cases, even in situations where they're doing things that are altruistic on their face, there, there's there's a business motivation to it. I don't know if that's where you're headed. Well, but. do we do we have a true definition of what evil is when it comes to a company? <laughs> so, like for example, yeah. I think like if I was at if I was an engineer at Goldman Sachs in in 2005, and I'm engineering some something that keeps track of how much money I'm making off of synthetic CDOs. Uh, yeah. And at the time, I'm thinking, wow, this is so great, creates a great market opportunity, um, it's fantastic for the bank, I am doing no wrong. Uh, in 2008, when the market collapses, in part due to the types of technologies that I was engineering, uh, <laughs> yeah. is that a judgment on me? Do I become evil? Like, what is what is the actual definition of, of evil here? Is there some sort of objective function that we can that we can place? Wow, that is that's a big question. I would say 
you have to go back to that person's original intent. Was their intent purely self-motivated or or did they feel like they were actually creating value beyond the value they were creating for themselves? In other words, were they contributing back to uh, home buyers or whoever it might have been that were benefiting from, you know, the roll-up of mortgages or, or you know, whatever it might have been that led to the, the 2008 crash? Um, <laughs> that's, that's, so, that is a, that's, 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 that's probably the toughest question I've been ever, ever been asked. What is, what is evil? What is evil? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know. So, like, cause I think like as a journalist, in some ways you're like a confessor of these companies, like, uh, yeah. you know, you're a retrospective confessor. Like the company is essentially in the confession booth saying, uh, oh, journalist, have I sinned? And you get to pass that judgment. So you get to. I Do mean, we though? I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I think, you know, boy, I I tend to look at the role of a journalist in a few different ways. And I don't know whether it's passing judgment. I, oh. I, I wonder. I, I think that certainly there is a role for that in journalism. In other words, uh, people writing columns and and uh, bloggers and, and and all those sorts of things. To me, journalism at its core is figuring out and digging up something that people don't generally know and conveying that in a way that gets across its meaning and its importance and why it matters. And um, if in the process of that, you're providing facts that people as readers then use to pass judgment on your on the subjects of your stories, then that's certainly good. But whether it's my role as a journalist to pass that judgment myself, I I don't know that that's true. Mm. And and that might be a very traditional way of looking at reporting. Actually, um, I think there are some people out there who would say, no, you need to take that next step and pass judgment yourself and and share that as part of your stories. Yeah, and there certainly are times when we share our opinions, and that is one thing. You know, my colleague John Cook and I came out of traditional newspapers, and uh, we've certainly expanded beyond that. And there are times when we do write things from a more per- personal perspective, even if they do include reporting. Um, but I, I still think that the the best journalism is the the journalism that finds the facts and lets the the readers or the listeners or the viewers come to the conclusions. Mm. The opinions, the opinions come to the. So opinions. you really try to subtract the bias. Gosh, I, I'm sure you know. I'm sure there are times when we fall short of that, and I'm sure there are times when we specifically are opinionated. I wouldn't say biased, but we, we're opinionated. We come to things with a perspective. I'm trying to think of some good examples on this, um, and nothing is immediately popping to mind. But um, it, I, I do think it's important. To start first with the facts, mm. and not start first with the opinion, mm. and and I do think that's where journalism can go off the rails. Is where reporters can come in with predetermined conclusions and cherry pick the facts that support how they feel. Mm. I think you see that a lot in politics, mm. for better and worse. So okay, getting back to like uh, you know this discussion of like uh, courts and. Uh, and companies that are in the news, you, you we have one more supposedly 
evil and modern company that we're hearing from a lot lately, which is Uber. In, <laughs> do you think in five years when when Uber finally extinguishes Lyft, you know, it already extinguished Sidecar, yeah. um, and the prices of an Uber drop even further, and you know, perhaps the drivers start breaking even, or even like losing money, or maybe getting thrown off the platform more aggressively, and and if the public narrative against Uber gets even stronger, uh, do you think we're going to see a court case against Uber? Oh, that's that's a really good, really good question. I think if there's any company, you mean like a, a regulatory court case against yeah. them? And now, of course, we're already seeing this, and to some extent, at the the local and I think at the yeah, state absolutely. level, where, but in terms of like a, a national DOJ investigation yes. into Uber and its its market power and how it uses it, I think if there's any tech company out there right now. Um, I, they are they are the most likely to face that kind of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. They're disrupting a traditional industry. They are acting in ways at times that uh, can be questioned by competitors, outsiders, by their own uh, not employees, by their own contractors, which is a whole other issue. Um, yes, absolutely. I think they are uh, candidate number one for uh, DOJ scrutiny mm-hmm. scrutiny in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um- I mean, I so I'm I don't follow the uh, the elections super closely, but somebody told me that uh, one of the platforms I think Hillary Clinton is running on is like the standardization of the gig economy. Did, oh. did, is there any truth you, to that? You know, I, I I haven't really followed that a oh, ton okay. at, at well, but I know I know that has been something that that she's talked about a lot, and right. um, it's been something that's been part of her campaign. Um, so yeah, I I I do think that. Th- Frankly, the 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 society would benefit from more vision from our political leaders on this topic mm. in general, and sort of politicians and governmental figures who understand what's going on. I think is I think it's an important thing. What's your take on that? The gig economy. Uh, you know, I think it can be empowering for people, and I think it can also be unempowering for people. It's really situational. I, you know, I. I'm sure most folks out there do the same thing as I do. When you get into an Uber and it's somebody and say you're in a good mood and, and they seem to be somebody approachable, I, I tend to strike up conversations. And it's amazing to me, um, you, you've kind of got two different camps. You've got the people who are using it to supplement their income. There was a guy I was talking to. He explained that he uh, sold refurbished Macs on Craigslist. That was mm. his job. And uh, it wasn't quite enough to make ends meet. And so he had started doing Uber and it, and it worked out really well for him. And he was making enough money to supplement his income and, and really get overall the equivalent of a full-time job between that and his Mac repairs. And uh, But then you see folks who are clearly um, – it, this is their full-time job and um, – you know, as a replacement for a taxi medallion, I, I don't know that it's as good for those drivers as as it could be. Uh, so, I, to me, in that way, the gig economy is is nice in that people can patch together different jobs and roles and and essentially assemble kind of a Lego uh, career for themselves, where they're just you know picking the picking the bricks they want. Mm. Um, whether it's healthy for the industry i don't know hmm. yeah yeah i was uh i i have a friend i 
talk to sometimes. I, and I do the same thing, by the way, and, and talk about talk to the Uber drivers. What's your, you know, what's your, what's the rest of your life? I'm sure like? they, I'm sure they hate that yeah. by the end. I mean, like you know, so many people asking them about themselves. But it, you know, I, sometimes you get that feeling. Maybe I don't know the thing. That, so the I have a list of questions that I always ask every Uber I get into. And um, how long have you been driving for Uber? How do you like it? Um, you know, what what other jobs do you have? Um, and then this, you know, other stuff. But um, I swear, it seems like every time I ask them, it's like, oh, I started three weeks ago, started six months ago. And it's like, <laughs> so does that mean that they're rotating off the people are getting rotated off the platform? Or does it mean that there's just more and more Uber drivers? Yeah. Um, but and then like with the stuff that they that they're doing in the rest of their their life is always interesting. Like, Sometimes it's like, you know, oh, I'm learning to be a software engineer. Right. Uh, you know, I have a I have a big data cluster um, running on an Amazon server uh, at home. And once I get off work, I'm going to go back and, and work on them. It's like, what? You know, my favorite Uber driver ever was the guy who I, I had this, a very similar conversation with him. And he asked me what I did. And I said, oh, you know, I, I tend not to to go into the details of being a tech reporter. But I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just you know generally in, in the tech industry. And he said, are you? Are you a uh, are you a, an engineer? And I said no, no, no. And he said, "Are, are you sure?" And I said, "He said, do you know engineers?" And he handed me his card. He was a recruiter. He was recruiting people, and he was purposefully driving around in the neighborhoods in South Lake Union. It's crazy because he his his main gig, to your point, was not Uber. He was a software recruiter, and he, this was his way of meeting engineers. <laughs> Did you ask him any more about that? Like, how got, successful is this deal sourcing? He, he's apparent. So, I guess he had sort of fallen into it. I, I guess he didn't. Um, he he did actually start as an Uber driver, and then I guess at one point he had uh, a recruiting company person in his back seat. You know, and they were talking about it, and she was, and he was saying, "Oh yeah, there's lots of engineers in my back seat." And I guess they put two and two together and uh -huh. said, "Man, you know, something the referral fees are really good if you can send folks our way." <laughs> it just it's a it was a very um seattle story Absolutely. you know it's like only in seattle would you run into or perhaps silicon valley i guess you know i get so many of these uh these linkedin messages from from recruiters looking for engineering talent and it, uh ugh, it's i it makes me wonder about the inner workings of of um of how this recruiting world works but um we should talk about that afterward because uh, oh. you, you should be, yeah. That, that I mean, this this is a whole other conversation that I don't know you want to have on the show, but it's, um, you know, let me just say this: GeekWire is an advertising-based business and sponsorship-based business, and one of the key drivers of interest from our sponsors and prospective sponsors is the ability to use our channels for advertising to reach engineers mm. and to recruit. Yeah. What kind of CPM you get on that? So we don't, so that's, <laughs> that's actually a really good point. And I'm happy to talk about this. So we are not CPM based. And so for folks who aren't immersed in advertising, the traditional advertising model is um, you pay per impression per thousand impression. The M is the, the thousand. And um, for one reason or another, we started doing time-based sponsorships at the very beginning. So the rates we charge are indirectly influenced by our traffic over time. In other words, we can we can justify um, higher rates um, if our traffic grows, but we are not charging per click or per conversion. Mm. We're just saying, hey, this is generally what you can expect. This is who our audience is. 
And it's actually from a journalism perspective, very good, because that means that we are not directly financially motivated by traffic. Mm -hmm. In other words, if in a given week we get 100,000 more page views or a million more page views, it doesn't matter on our bottom line. Mm -hmm. Now, over time, we want to see the trend go up. Sure. So it's actually much more – from, from our perspective, it, it leads to a much more healthy relationship between the editorial and the business sides, which we keep very separate. Yeah. I mean this 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 is the same we – we have the same kind of – uh, discussions around this on software engineering daily when we're like thinking about uh, how to do advertising and uh, it actually does help to be decoupled from the standardized uh, ways that people do things like CPM has a very uh, standardized vocabulary and and rate that that uh, that get charged around it and if you have a, a less standardized thing like a time based Thing, then you, you have more room to negotiate. That's true. That said, your ultimate reach with advertisers and sponsors is limited because, for example, if we were to talk to a New York ad agency and we were just to say, hey, uh, no, we're not going to talk to you about CPM. We're just going to talk to you about the general audience that we reach and our weekly and monthly rates or annual rates for sponsorships. It's it's the conversation doesn't go far, mm. so there is some display. I should just be really specific and accurate. There are some display ads, uh, particularly network ads on GeekWire that are CPM, mm. um, but it's not a big part of of our business. You know, we mm. we do a lot of events, which is a big part of our business, and event sponsorships, um, and then uh, sponsorships and advertising on the site are, are a big mm. part of the the revenue model. So this uh, this kind of brings us to topic around uh, sponsored content. I mean, this is so far removed from software engineering at this point, but who cares? Um, <laughs> if somebody like, made it this far. <laughs> no, I think there's plenty of people listening. I actually, like, I think there's some interest in, like, episodes where I do deviate from yeah. software engineering topics because there's enough episodes about software engineering that we do. And, and I'm not an engineer, so frankly, my, <laughs> the, you know, the, 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 this is probably in, inevitable that we would go away from software engineering. Well, okay. So so the sponsored content thing, like I've, I've heard a number of podcasts and read some stuff about how BuzzFeed arranges their, um, their content versus their, their advertising office. Um, so I guess a couple questions. Like one, do you – how do you see the sponsored content landscape currently? How do you see it evolving and what do you do to maintain that Chinese wall yeah. between between advertising and content? Yeah, yeah. You're sitting next to our wall by the way. Oh. The, the, the ad guys are literally on the other oh, side. okay. The ad team uh, is literally on the other side. Um, so – we are very conscious of it. Um, I can just I can speak only from our experience. Um, so we are so care so careful. It's to the point where a lot of times our reporters won't know um, won't know that a company they're writing about is a sponsor. It won't be on their mind. You know they they won't. And we like that. Um, we, we would prefer that they just operate in a vacuum and write the story that they're going to write no matter what. Um, I've lost us uh, at least two sponsors because of stories that I've written. Accurate, fair, tough stories that they did not like. Amazon and Microsoft? No, not, not Amazon <laughs> and Microsoft. No. Um, 
So, you know, to, to me, that's a testament to the fact that we're we're doing our best to, to keep that that wall there. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, we have a membership model and there have been times when I, when we've written stories that I know have lost us members and I'm not thinking about it as I'm writing the story. I'm one of the co-founders of the company, so I'm, a, I'm aware of it afterward. And, um, frankly, it's more a badge of a badge of pride that we're just doing what we should be doing journalistically, no matter what, and just betting as a business that over time, you know, the just the fact that we're doing quality journalism will ensure our survival, mm. no matter if it loses us one-off deals, mm. um, loses our ad team one-off deals. Um, that said, there are two forms of content that we've been doing that are um, that get into the realm of sponsored content. And our philosophy is that as long as it's clearly labeled, as long as the reader understands what's going on, then you're you're good. So the, the first form is um, something akin to underwriting. And so a great example of that is um, Steve Singh, the um, CEO of Concur Technologies over in Bellevue. He has a family foundation. And at one point he talked to uh, John Cook, my colleague, and said, hey, this story that you guys did about the uh, bus that went around uh, with with all of the high school kids to the um, – to, to speak to female CEOs about what makes them work. This kind of story, you guys need to do more of this kind of story. And John said to Steve, hey, you know something? Can you help us do more of that kind of story? And so Steve underwrites what we call the impact series. Ah. And we have a reporter dedicated just to that. And the idea is to say, where are there examples of people using technology to do good? Mm. Not to do things in their own self-interest, but to do good. And we have a reporter named Lisa Stifler who writes one one long, in-depth, well-reported story on that topic every single week. And so Steve, it's it's underwritten. It's sponsored. He helps to fund the resource, the reporting resources, but he's not involved in the actual decisions. He just was involved in the vision saying, hey, this is important. You need, You guys need to do more of this. Mm. And – here is some funding to, to make it happen. Mm. So that's number one. We call it underwriting. So it's editorial content that's supported by uh, someone who's not involved in the editorial decisions. Yeah. Then you have actual sponsored content, um, and that is it, – it's an ad. It's written by them. Um, it's, it uh, is an advertorial. It's labeled at the top, sponsored, sponsored post, um, and it's, there, it's them writing it. So it's basically an ad in – the form of an article, but clearly labeled as an ad. Sure. That, so those are the two things that we do. I think there's times when some publications do that latter form of content, you know, the the native con native advertising as it's called, and it's not clear. It's not super clear to the reader that it's actually sponsored. Yeah. And I, so I think using words like sponsored and paid, and I think that's really clear. And there's some other vague terms that some sites can use that make it more difficult to, to see that. So that's where we are on it. Um, frankly, we're not as uh, progressive, <laughs> I guess is the right word. We don't push the envelope on that as a lot of other sites do. Um, we're a little more conservative in terms of how we approach that. We'll, we'll let things play out and see what works for some other sites, mm. you know, and, and, and you could say maybe we're not being innovative enough, but I, frankly, you know, we're, and we haven't gotten into this at all, but um, we've 
if you look at other sites similar to ours in Silicon Valley, their approach has been very different than ours in terms of the way they built their business. We raised us, John, John and I raised a small funding round at the very beginning in 2000, uh, 2010. Yeah, we're coming up on our five-year anniversary. So it was actually 2011, March of 2011 is when we found it, were founded. And Jonathan Spizzato, who um, is known by many folks in the Seattle startup community, he's our angel investor. He's our chairman. We raised a small funding round from him at the beginning. Our joke was we raised just enough money for John and I to run the company into the ground over two years. And uh, fortunately, that didn't happen. And so from that point, we've bootstrapped our growth. And um, basically, when the business has done well enough, we've expanded. And we have not raised any additional funding beyond that initial very modest seed round. Yeah. And um, I think that – contrast that with an approach where a a company goes out and raises $30 in VC, you know – and then leverages that. Sure. I mean, it, I think that creates a very different mentality where you're going out and you're doing things that are actually not in the interest of your business. And I'm just speaking from a media perspective. If I had to uh, report every quarter to a VC, you know, gosh, I don't know. It would be it would put a person in a very difficult and a very different position. And um put undue pressure on that person to show growth and profits or just growth, frankly, growth in users and revenue that matched the ambitions and the ultimate desire for the investor's exit. So do you feel the need to grow aggressively nipping at your heels or is it more a constant desire to improve journalistic intent? Because it sounds like those two things are not necessarily one in the same goal. Yeah. It, our hope is that if we do really good journalism, if we serve the community well through our events, mm. that the business will follow. Mm. And let me be clear. I mean, John, so the way John and I split our roles, we're both doing some reporting. Um, and I'm, I've am i been doing a little bit more recently than I have over the past six months. I've been trying to get back into it a little bit. Um, but John is much more in the business development um, and events. So John is John is he's uh, really become um, proficient and uh, expert in running events in a way that I just don't know. I don't know how to, I, I'm involved and I help. Um, whereas I'm much more involved in the editorial and the operations. Mm. So that that's sort of how we've split our two roles. And we don't we still haven't figured out what to call each other. We still just say co-founder. Uh, so, um, but the, the, the whole idea is, you know, we want to grow, we want to build a successful business, but we don't want to do that at, at the expense of our journalism or at the expense of the community. Uh, we want it to, to all sort of lift up together. Okay. So to begin to close off, I want to ask some, yeah. kind of a question. This is like self-interest related. Um, you know, like software engineering daily, we're trying to figure out like, how do we think about scaling or growing or moving into different verticals? Uh, and there's so many options, and it's hard to determine what is a distraction, oh, yeah. what is something that you should just bear down on, put all your energy into. Um, what, like, how did you sort through that? And like, yeah. what what were the things that that really gave you ROI? In ter- I mean, not just in terms of money, but in terms of like what felt like 
was growing the business uh, and the organization in a direction that you wanted to. I mean, you've got you've got at this point, you know, podcasts, written content, conferences, um, other ancillary things. Uh, yeah, um, a, a job board, job memberships. Board, sure. Um, so we've got a podcast. We've, we've got That's it. yeah, no, we've got a, a healthcare program. Okay, it's tied to our membership program. So. I don't think that I'm going to – that we necessarily practice what I'm about to preach. <laughs> so th- there is something to be said though for creating a bunch of different diverse revenue sources as a startup. And um, you know, our main source of – our main two sources of revenue are the, um, the events business and the online advertising. Those are the, the primary two. And the events business is divided up into sponsorships and, and ticket sales. Um, gosh – it's it's hard to be um, prescriptive in a vague way on this. I I can tell you what I think you should do. Do you want to know? Yeah, please. I, I think you've got to run events. I, mm. I think you've got to expand into. I think you've got. And if I were you, I would start with very casual meetups. Mm. I don't know if you've started. It. I mean, you've we got. Haven't done any yeah, events. I would. I would love to see the crowd that showed up at mm. the first software engineering daily meetup. Mm. Yeah. You've got this great T-shirt that you're wearing. You should you could give out a bunch. That's true. We, I love we, the shirt. Well, we gave out. Thank you. <laughs> By, uh, the producer, Pranay Mohan, designed it, and I did give out some at QCon recently. We'll be giving out more at upcoming O'Reilly events. Yeah, I love it because it's it's your aesthetic. It's, yeah. it's, it's simple. <laughs> I love it. It's almost generic. It, yes, but it's it's uh, unique in its genericness. Right. <laughs> no, I, seriously, um, I, I think that that would be a first step. I, I would love to see hmm. – Frankly, you'd be competing with us in some regards, but who cares? Mm. You know, there's there's tons tons of people out there and tons of events to go to, and and uh, I, I I think it would be fantastic. And you know, nothing drives home the um, the size and the power of the audience that you've built more than seeing everybody in person. Ah, interesting. I mean, it's 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 such an online world that. It's actually extremely powerful to go back to basics in some respects and just just meet in person, and uh, and get everybody together. So, you know, and then you know, there's a whole business to to be. Uh, I'm probably going to be uh, scaring away all your attendees because they think you're gonna, they're going to be turned into a commodity for your future business ambitions. But oh, they're already a commodity. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners so, have no illusions. That's right. <laughs> I'm only in it for the money. No, come on, that's not <laughs> true. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, so at, at any rate, I, to me, that that makes tons and tons of sense. Mm. I I still do think you should do more written content. Mm. Uh, look, I love producing the written content. I love writing, but Oh my goodness! Does it take time yeah. to write a good a good piece? It does. Um, okay, well that seems like a great place to stop, uh, Todd. <laughs> now that I've given you really bad business advice, no, you, I think it's great. It's great <laughs> business advice. Um, uh, as soon as we get off the air, I'm gonna ask you about an accountant. Uh, <laughs> Todd, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's always a pleasure. Um, you uh, you and your team's advice has been uh, extremely influential and helpful on the journey to making Software Engineering Daily something that. Uh, runs on its own fumes. So thank you so much. Anytime, Jeff. Okay, great. Cool. This was great. <laughs> How do I stop this? Just hit the stop. Good, and then I'll stop and export right now. So...